This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm excited for this episode. Uh, you know, we love speaking to expert investors here at Equity Mates. And one thing that I've learned over the journey is that there's plenty of different strategies uh, to make money in investing. There's a lot of ways to make money in the markets. And uh, we've come across an expert investor who has a pretty fascinating strategy that I'm really excited to unpack. So looking forward to this episode. It is our pleasure to welcome Lawrence Lamb to Equity Mates. Lawrence, welcome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Glad to be an equity mate. Uh, <laughs> yes. Three founders, three mics. Here we go. <laughs> Let's do it. So Lawrence is Managing Director and Founder of Luminary Investment Management, running a global equities strategy focused exclusively on founder-led companies. The fund invests in founders who own and run their companies consisting of 10 to 20 founder-led companies with an emphasis on emerging products and services. And it is that lens that we're going to be talking about today, understanding the strategy around investing in founder-led. But before we do, Lawrence, uh, we always start with a bit of an overrated, underrated game. So, Ren, let's kick it off. That's it, Lawrence. Uh, we, we want to touch on a few topics or themes we may not otherwise get to in the episode. So, if we start uh, at home in Australia, overrated or underrated, the ASX 200 index? Oh, overrated. You've got 40,000 stocks globally. Australia represents 2,000 of those. And of the 2,000, you're saying that you want just the 200 of the 2,000. So why would you limit yourself to 0.5% of the entire investment universe? Yeah, why would you? Great question. (laughs) Overrated or underrated? The NASDAQ 100. Overrated. I'd be targeting the NASDAQ 300 to 600 instead. They're the ones that are underrated and they will be the next NASDAQ 100. So if you want to jump on the NASDAQ 100 now, it's a bit like jumping on the Melbourne Demons right now. <laughs> Better to back the Demons last year and not now. So, Lawrence, we're, you know, we're recording in a context where there's a lot of uh, concern over in China around uh, Evergrande and their real estate market and what that could mean for the global economy. 
So overrated or underrated, uh, those fears about China's real estate market? Clearly overrated. China is a global rising power. There is no denying that. Investors that play the long game, you want to participate in that rise. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions about China. Uh, you know, perhaps maybe it's it's that I understand the culture better than most. Who knows? I'm not sure. But the fact remains that China is continuing to rise. We will look back in a few years' time, in a decade's time, and we'll see this as, hey, it was a great opportunity to enter into the China market. And we've done that ourselves with, with my fund. Stocks on 50%, 60% discount not only from Evergrande, but also from the education reforms, the tech reforms. There's a lot of opportunity um, and a window is opening up in China for sure. Mm. Well, on the theme of property, overrated or underrated, the Australian property residential market? Underrated. Underrated as a essential tool in the toolkit. The beauty of property is you have the ability to use financial structuring. So, when you have low rates and high property valuations, some may look at it and say, well, oh, that's, that's just risk off, you know, take money off the table. But actually, when you think about it, if you already have a bit of property in the market, it's a great opportunity to revalue your property, re-gear, you unlock cash. For retail investors, you know, you've got access to offset accounts and you have that cash available for deployment. Uh, and then not to mention the tax deductions that are available with property. So no personal financial advice, but <laughs> but it's it's an absolute essential tool in the toolkit, especially when you factor in that ability to structure um, and enhance your portfolio with, with gearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that answer. I think uh, commonly we get the response around, is the market overvalued or is the market undervalued? But I like that lens that you, you took around the, the structuring of your personal finances. Uh, Lawrence, final question for this game. Uh, you know, if we're touching on uh, hot topics in, in investing markets at the moment, we have to touch on this one. Overrated or underrated? Bitcoin. Underrated. It's gold 2.0. Highly uncorrelated. It's an effective hedge. And we saw this during the pandemic last year. You know, there was a bit of a drawdown, but you compare Bitcoin to gold and to equities. I use the analogy of a salad. You can't just have all leaves in a salad. You need a bit of meat and Bitcoin's that meat. It's highly uncorrelated and it's an effective hedge. So the way I would enter into Bitcoin is for, for a lot of investors is to wait for the crypto ETFs that are about to launch. I mean, ASIC's doing a review at the moment, but uh, if you're concerned about the, the risk of exchanges, crypto ETFs are coming. Yeah, it feels like... Uh ASIC in Australia, the SEC in the US, there's been a long time of uh, review for these ETFs. So hopefully we see them in the market soon. Uh, but Lawrence, we, we really want to focus on uh, your founder-led company strategy, but I guess uh, we want to hear a little bit about your investing background and how you came to this strategy first. So if we start at the very beginning of your investing journey, can you tell us the story of your very first investment? Yeah, sure. Uh, my first investments were actually during uni, managed funds, boring stuff. Um, I knew back then that I wasn't an expert and I needed the expertise of, of professionals. But my first real direct investment was, I remember it quite vividly because it was a Saturday morning. It was um, a master's class that I did, um, weekend lecture. Mr. Hart, if you're listening, thanks for, thanks, for, <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for getting me down this path. You know, he taught funds management, the subject. Uh, at Melbourne Uni. Now, what he taught was value investing in a real life application. 
And in particular, it wasn't the boring stuff, the cigar butt stuff like Buffett and Graham, what they talk about where you're picking up companies at discounts. He talked about value investing applied to REITs, closed-end funds, and infrastructure assets. So distinctly different. Now, I remember first hearing about that when he talked about it and then spending the rest of the weekend researching, looking for these discounts. So the weekend was all lost. Um, the following week, I remember coming across an LIC, Argo Investments. And that first feeling when you find something that is actually quantitatively at a discount and with LICs, you can actually quantify it and Argo themselves quantified for you. It's a thrilling feeling. So that was my first foray into a different slant on value investing. But uh, And then I, it got me down the whole rabbit hole of um, Ben Graham and securities analysis and all the, all the ratios. But definitely the REITs, the LICs, closed-end funds, infrastructure assets back then were not as popular as they are now and those discounts did exist. Mm. So in your career, you spent a fair bit of time, or a bit of time as an investment banker. Um, What did you learn about markets during that time? And was there anything that you think retail investors often got wrong about the markets? They missed the importance of the human side of business. And by that, I specifically mean the power of motivation and incentives. Because as as retail investors, you're often thinking about, uh, is this a good company? Is it good management? Quantitatively, fundamentals, the numbers are good, the ratios are good. But you often miss the human side of business. And during my time in investment banking, I saw a lot of behaviours that most retail investors probably don't see. And, and some examples of that are analyst recommendations. When investment banks are writing papers on companies, there's vested interests at play. They don't benefit from buying the stock themselves or another another team will look at that. But the sales team, when they're trying to sell these recommendations, how they're benefiting is through transaction volume and flow. You have to realize, looking at it from the inside, that there are a lot of incentives that aren't necessarily aligned to the end investor. So when you read that report, you think, oh, it's a great company. But you've got to also understand what's sitting behind that and the motivations behind that. Classic example, again, is annual bonuses. Even in everyday companies now, you see salaried CEOs, big bonuses, you know, three or five-year contracts, done and dusted, shake your hands, I'm done, get my bonus, get out. Um, again, causes misalignment. So the analogy I like to use is I want to get into a plane where the pilot doesn't have a parachute. And I don't want <laughs> – I want to get into that plane with that guy that's not getting off at the next stopover and I'm on the long-haul flight. I don't want that. I like that uh, analogy and I think that leads nicely into this founder-led company investment philosophy that you have. Um, they are the definition of pilots that are strapped into that plane and either landing it or crashing it. But I guess uh, before we get into the details of the strategy, um, how did you develop the strategy? You know, How did you go from looking at REITs and infrastructure assets trading at a discount to your you know, your career in investment banking to developing this uh, philosophy? So in terms of my philosophy, I sort of see different grades of returns. So it's a bit like, you know, sugar levels and GI. You get these short, sharp returns. They're easy, quick, easy, but they're not sustainable. So everyday salaries, bonuses that you get paid, it's like they're fires lit by, by paper. Uh, they'll go out quickly, but they're easy to get. Then you have these long, slow-burning returns. So investments, compounding, to an extent, even in your everyday life, your health, 
all these things actually give you sustained returns over very long periods. Your health, relationships, your reputation, societal values, they're fires lit with heavy logs. So when I was progressing through my career, uh, and uh, you know, in investment banking, you get paid a lot, but equally at the same time, they're short, sharp returns, good bonuses, good salaries, but you're not actually compounding yourself and building those returns over a long period of time. When I started personally investing, I really started off in the Australian market. I looked at a lot of ASX-listed founder-led companies organically over time, just from a value investor lens, and then slowly, slowly evolved more into the global level to the point where I, through my career, also saw a lot of different types of companies but I wanted to take it global. And that's how I started Luminary four years ago when I said there's a strategy here where you're looking beyond just our shores, but globally picking a a team of founders, like a sports team, that have the best ideas, the best companies, and the greatest hunger to succeed. So before we jump into the nitty-gritty of the founder-led strategy, we will just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So, Lawrence, you've kind of touched on it a bit there, but... It's worth starting at the top to define sort of a founder-led company and then also are you able to explain why you think they make such good investments? If I distill the founder-led strategy to its core, it's chefs who eat what they cook and that's that's how Warren Buffett terms it. It's the chefs that eat what they cook, they're eating the entree, the main and the dessert and they're not going to bail you halfway through the meal. These are companies led by founders, you know, those who have accountability, ownership and influence over the destiny of that company, whether it be good or bad, you know, they will be there and they will cop it on the chin. So examples of what I'm looking for when I look for founder-led companies, it's equity ownership percentages, it's management position, uh, CEO, uh, CEO, senior management, board directorship, CEO, uh, sorry, uh, chair, and often sometimes a little bit underrated is their name on the logo. A lot you see that a lot with <laughs> a lot of European uh, founder-led companies. It's actually their name, and that is incredibly powerful because, as I mentioned before, it's about reputation for them. Ideally, you hit all of those metrics, and they're all high, but you're not often going to find a, a really great company at a really great price and hit all four. It's it's quite rare. So, what you want to aim for is as many of those as possible. The challenge for a lot of non-founder-led companies is the equity ownership management board. That triangle, 
of relationship, there, there's often gaps and misalignments. As I mentioned, when uh, when I had my going through my career, I, I witnessed a lot of those misalignments. And it's you know they often try and fix it with with money, you know, bonuses and incentives. It's not a money problem; it's a behavioural problem. Uh, and so for investors, if you're invested in a in a bureaucratic non-founder-led company, you'll suffer over the long term because you you don't have that alignment with the ultimate managers, owners, and directors. So the way to solve that isn't actually to try and try and fix the company with these band-aids, bonuses and things. It's actually to bypass those opportunities altogether. Why would I invest in that type of company when I can get a manager who's actively involved, cares deeply about their business, and is thinking about it over the long term? So what you want to do is you want to harness that hunger and alignment. It's a powerful combination and you want to invest alongside them and you want to back them. It's a lot easier than trying to uh, swim against the tide the other way. I like that uh, idea of a triangle of equity ownership management and board. Uh, in terms of like strict definitions, do you, do you have any sort of rules of thumb that you use? Is there like a percentage equity ownership that you want to see a founder retaining to consider it as an investment or is it more about the founder being involved in the management team day to day, like where's the, I guess, the edges of your definition of a founder-led business? I'm looking for for equity ownership. I'm looking for voting rights. You know, oftentimes you'll see companies split into class A and class B, where economic ownership is very distinctly different to voting rights. I'm looking for management board positions, family holdings. As I said, I'm looking for things that hit all of that. In terms of the main important things, it's actually not the absolute number or the absolute static position of those metrics. It's the direction in which they're changing. So what I mean by that is, uh, let's take Facebook, Amazon as an example. Mark Zuckerberg has been selling down his economic ownership in Facebook since heavily since 2020. He retains a very high voting percentage, but his economic ownership is getting lower and lower. For me, that's a red flag. For me, that's saying, hey, you should review Facebook. And same with Amazon. And even if you look at a company like Virgin, Richard Branson, he's really just the face of it. I, I, I don't think he has much ownership in Virgin anymore and of all the various entities. I, I would look at the, the direction of change mm. as opposed to more the absolute mm. metrics. Is there a minimum though in terms of equity holding you want to see sort of founders have? Yeah, I like to see at least 10%. I mean, any any less than that and you're kind of approaching your territory of you're just a passive. Having said that, if you're at, say, 8% and your CEO and your chair, well, that's a distinctly different distinctly different situation than if you're just holding 10% and you're not involved at all. Mm. Right? Yeah. So mm. it's all those metrics combined. Mm. The next question is around how many of these companies actually exist. Um, you know, I guess both in Australia, but you're a global investor. So around the world, what, what's the size of the opportunity set here? How many businesses meet that definition of founder-led? Yeah, uh, Credit Suisse have done some research on this and they, there's a, if you Google family 1000 research, you know, they claim there's a, a thousand of these family led or founder led companies. I go through 40,000 stocks globally. Um, I'm seeing around 2000. Um, that's through all geographies, Asia included, China included. And there's a huge diverse range. So you can range from the VC type, just IPO type of companies through to the generational very long-lived companies. In Australia, what, two to 300? There's a lot. You just have to look. Obviously, they're more concentrated in the lower end, the smaller end of the market, but there's about two to 300. So my process is you look at the whole world, 40,000. 
I screened to 500 based on quality and founder-led of the, say, the 2,000 globally. I rule out a lot of those just on quality. And then from 500, I go to 50 on a qualitative filter. And then of the 50, I'll wait until the price is right before 10 to 20 end up in the portfolio. And the 10 or 20 is not static. So you mentioned, I mentioned before, monitoring all those metrics and the direction of change. If the change is unfavorable, I recycle out of that company and put the capital elsewhere. So perhaps it's worth then sharing a few examples of founder-led companies that are either in the portfolio, ones that you admire. Yeah, we'd love to kind of hear from that set that you've whittled down. What's exciting you at the moment? There's a lot out there um, and for different reasons. Um, so in terms of generational runways, what uh, Peter Vander does is doing at Adyen, which is a Netherlands-based company. They're going to be around for decades. Um, but there's a real big opportunity in the aggregation space. And what they're doing is aggregating payments. So you think about all the payment methods that people have, PayPal, Apple Pay, globally, not even Visa and MasterCard. So in, in China, they'll use WeChat Pay, Alipay. It becomes very cumbersome for companies to manage all these payment options because they want to sell globally and, and it's hard. So what Adin have done is they've aggregated all these payment systems into their platform, dealt with all the regulation, dealt with all the security issues as well. And all a retailer needs to do is just plug into that. In return, Adin will take a clip of every single transaction going through their customers like eBay, Nike, uh, Etsy, all, all those types of companies. That is a company in our portfolio. I think it's got a huge generational runway. Um, in South Korea, Kim Byung-soo is the founder of Kakao. They are the WhatsApp, Spotify, Uber of South Korea. You, if you go to Korea, you cannot live without Kakao. Uh, he'll be around for decades to come. In terms of uh, who I admire, in terms of founders' philosophies, can't go past Mike Cannon, Brooks and Scott Farquhar at Atlassian. They're paying themselves minimum wage. They're literally paying themselves 77000 a year. And you see that often in founders that truly believe in the long term. Warren Buffett is the same, pays himself 100000 You've got game changers in, in South America, like Marcos Galperin at Mercado Libre the Amazon of South America. He fought through some very tough battles overcoming Amazon and eBay in South America and a rival as well, a local rival. He did that very interestingly through his tech stack. He deliberately didn't outsource a lot of his technology. He insourced it, in fact, uh, and that's how he outlasted all his competitors. Uh, locally, you look. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of um, what Andrew and Roger Brown have done at ARB, four-wheel drive accessories, mm. roof racks, hugely underrated company that just keeps plugging away. And who would have thought that, you know, starting a bull bar company in, in your garage can end up being a global brand. It's it's truly an amazing story. And what they've done there is very inspirational for a lot of founders. We've had ARB uh, suggested by a few experts on, on the podcast and on our Watchlist Wednesday show on AusBiz. So interesting that it's getting another mention here. I, I think my big takeaway from that list of five companies you just mentioned is you know, people will often think about founder-led companies as small companies, maybe recently IPO'd, but some of the companies there are, are massive. You know, Atlassian and Mercado Libre are $100 billion companies um, at, at least. So it's probably a good reminder that when we're talking about a founder-led strategy here, we are really covering all, all parts of the market. Yeah, and I think um, if I can run through the context of the evolution of founder-led companies, it used to be back in the day that it was very hard to create a founder-led company by yourself, hard infrastructure. You need to 
build factories. You need to have sales force humans on the ground. That was back in the day. So people like Walmart, Nike, Marriott, you know, those types of companies, when they succeeded, their degree of difficulty was super high. Then locally, you had, you know, Westfield, Aristocrat, Vizzy, um, Reese Plumbing, those, those types of companies. The game has changed. It's now much easier to go viral, to go global. The tools are available to, to build a very capital light business that can sell and grow very quickly. We've seen that with Afterpay locally. We've seen that with even Facebook, very young company. And then a lot of up-and-coming founder-led companies in China. Tencent is one. You've got uh, Alibaba. And they're even younger than the American counterparts. So all the tools are there. Um, and that's where I think the value is for, for founder-led investing. And, and that's the evolution of it. With this investing strategy, I, I'm sure there comes some unique risks. You know, you're really focused on on the people and the founder. So uh, I'd love for you to sort of explain that. Um, are there any unique risks and how do you manage them being concentrated on this strategy of founder-led businesses? Definitely, as I mentioned, the direction of influence, very important. So are they selling down? That's the key flag that founder-led investors should look for. I mentioned Facebook, Zuckerberg is selling down. Afterpay, sold down. An ASX company, Dikadata, sold down recently. Now, you want to be on top of these announcements when they happen. And there will be the usual spiel that people give. I want to diversify my personal investments. I want to, um, you know, buy a new house or buy a new mansion, whatever it is. But the fact remains that it's a red flag over the long term. So even though Afterpay have sold down and they're still there, you have to be mindful over time that that could change. Then I look for, for things like um, their motivation. I'm looking for their, their, their salaries, the extracurricular stuff. I really don't like uh, founders that start over self-promoting and over-marketing themselves too much. That shows to me that their, their focus is shifting. And then, of course, you look at intercompany transactions as a due diligence piece. That's outlined in every annual report. You would have avoided companies like WeWork if you look through the intercompany transactions. And then lastly, you know, for some of the older founders, succession planning. Uh, I, I was in Korea interviewing a founder and he was saying that he lamented the fact that his daughter was not interested in his business. He said, she just wants to be a K-pop star. She, she has no interest in, in joining my company. And that's partly the price you pay when you're working so hard. So uh, that's an important factor as well, a risk factor, succession planning. On the idea of selling down, you know, the if we take Atlassian as an example, Mike Cannon Brooks and Scott Farquhar have a, I guess, a systematic way that they sell down stock and they've been very clear to the market that at certain points they will be selling down. And, you know, that's because they are taking minimum wage from as a salary and, you know, their, their wealth is tied up in Atlassian shares. Do you view that selling down the same way you might view, I guess, more of a surprise announcement that a, that a founder has sold down? Yeah, it, it's definitely a, an American style where you have, the SEC calls it 10B51. Basically, it's a, it's a document that outlines your plan to sell down and that's preemptive. So it's programmed in and, and that is nowhere near as bad as, as, a, as a voluntary sell down uh, for obvious reasons. And you've got to recognize that companies like Atlassian, they're not paying dividends so, you know, the, the only way that uh, the guys there can extract value is either through salary or, or through sell-down. 10B51 plans are, are quite common uh, for a lot of founders in the US. 
it's distinctly different to European and Asian founders. You know, the culture there for Europeans and Asians is they don't really sell down. They hold on to it quite tightly. It's more of a dynastic mindset. So you get a full spectrum from the American guys who like to flip, like to sell, like to start the next thing. On balance, you know, the, the guys that are last in are quite, quite fair. You know, I'd rather them pay themselves minimum salary and, and, and see them sell down than someone who pays themselves two to $3 million and, and also sells down. That's my take on it. You mentioned succession planning there, and I guess that's a really interesting one to touch on because some of the companies you mentioned so far, you know, like the Walmarts, the Nikes were founder led for a long time, but the founders no longer run those businesses. What do you want to see in succession planning? Do you want to see it stay in the family or, you know, if it's, if, do you want to see, um, I guess, a professional CEO or someone who's been in the company for a long time uh, step in, um, but then the founder and the founder's family taking a back seat? Yeah, that's a very common model in Europe, especially. Um, you have holding companies where generations hold onto the company and they run by professional managers. For Luminary, for my funds, that's beyond my interest. So when they get to that point, the Walmarts, the Nikes, the Marriotts, uh, we were a former investor in Nike, but we've since um, disposed of that stock. But when you get to that sort of age, it's I think there's a lot better opportunities elsewhere. And the, as I said, the universe is big. So you compare companies uh, like Adyen Cacao, Atlassian even, and you compare those to the older generation founder-led companies. For me, I'd rather look at the, at the first generation founder who's still hungry, who's still highly motivated. And there are plenty of those. You know, there's obviously a changing dynamic here. How has your approach and philosophy changed? And what's the general trend, I guess, when it comes to these founder-led companies? We're seeing less and less of an opportunity. Um, Feels like the startup space in Australia is only growing, you know, more IPOs coming to market. How do you see this playing out over the next sort of 10 years from your portfolio point of view? I think more and more the the mainstream names are, are done. It's a little bit like when we talked about the Nasdaq 100. Yeah. The Facebook, Amazon's alphabets, the Afterpays, the Squares. You know, it's too obvious. It's too well covered. The edge that a lot of investors in this space will have is to look for the up and coming first generation founders. Mm. So I used to focus a lot on the second, third generation, more of that kind of value mindset. The older companies, the industries. I've realized it's too commoditized and too mainstream. What you really should be focusing on are the first movers. And the reasoning is because the market has changed. The tools to grow are available. This ability to go viral is available to anyone. And you really want to then harness that hunger and drive. So it is possible to game change and go global much faster these days. You look at companies like Zillow, HelloFresh, Spotify, DocCheck, these are all companies that have just sprouted in the last 10 years. Mm. And that's where the evolution of this founder-led investing will, will head. Did you get in an afterpay? No. Uh, <laughs> no. No, no. I, um, I actually don't hold any in Australia at the moment out of, the, right. out of the 11 stocks. Um, I'm very globally focused. I just think there's a lot more opportunity globally uh, and uh, I really want to see companies that you know, don't, don't end up being acquired. I want the, the runway to be extremely 
far and long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On on that theme of it's never been easier for companies to start and, you know, go viral and, you know, expand globally from the comfort of their computer, are there any companies that you're watching now that you think really embody some of those traits that you've that you've previously seen in the likes of, you know, Spotify um, and companies like that? Uh, I think um, in the advertising space, really fascinating space. There's a few founder-led companies I am looking very closely at at the moment, uh, and it's not Trade Desk, by the way. It's uh, <laughs> that's that's again too too obvious. The advertising space is changing very quickly. Chrome, uh, the cookies is dying. Chrome is uh, ha- has now uh, a lot of browsers have now announced that uh, the cookie will be dead by 2023. And this opens up a lot of opportunity. So where there's change, where there's challenges, that's where these founders really come through. So advertising platforms that facilitate a digital style of buying and selling media assets. And even just through the pandemic now, you you look at how differently we are now consuming media. Podcasts are on the rise. Connected TV, CTV they call it, over-the-top media is on huge growth trajectories. And at the moment, you're paying for a subscription on Netflix, you're not seeing any ads. But as the market evolves, there's a huge opportunity for ads to be placed to change that pricing model where some people might choose, I don't want to pay a subscription, but I'm happy to see ads. And that's where this automation of advertising and buying and selling of media assets will change. But in terms of names, um, withholding for now. I'll keep that to myself for now. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, uh, we'll have to keep an eye on your fund and uh, see if any na- <laughs> if you mention any names. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating strategy. And I think, you know, from when I first was thinking about uh, founder-led companies to now thinking about some of those names that we're actually talking about, their names that have really driven returns in markets. You know, Afterpay has been one of the best performers of the last few years in Australia, Alassian, Mercado Libre. Like they are, they're companies really on the forefront of some innovation. And if you think back in history, Walmart and Nike and stuff were, were much the same for past generations. So, it's a fascinating strategy. Um, if people want to find out more about the strategy, are there any particular you know resources you used to build your knowledge, any books or anything? And then on the flip side, is there anywhere they can jump on to read more of your work and, and find out more about the strategy? Uh, yeah, website is the best place to keep in touch, uh, luminaryinvest.com. I publish a newsletter sharing founder-led companies, interesting ones I come across uh, on a quarterly basis. So you can just subscribe to that. It's www.luminaryinvest.com slash subscribe. In terms of books and resources, you know, I, I read a lot of uh, fiction these days. I, I find that it helps with my empathy and it allows me to be in the shoes of not only historical figures, but people in different industries. Um, so I, I find that helpful. If you talk about nonfiction, you know, I'm more interested in psychology um, these days. Influenced by Robert Cialdini is a great book. In terms of biography, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. Fascinating book that almost borders on on fiction. It's, it's that unreal uh, and that inspirational. For the pure finance nuts, I really like academics because I find that they don't have a have a vested interest in what they write. So Bruce Greenwald, Value Investing. Peter Lynch has written a book. He's retired now, but One Up on Wall Street is a fascinating book about how the everyday person can get an edge over Wall Street. 
for those that are into fiction, Canto Monte Cristo, oldie but a goodie. Um, Alexandre Dumas, just amazing tale of um, of, of imagination and um, going through challenges in, in one's life and overcoming those. There's some, some good recommendations there. Bryce's go-to recommendation whenever he's talking books is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. Uh, mm, and, you know, book. given it's a founder-led company, it's uh, very on theme for today's interview. So we'll jump into the final two questions then. Um, in 60 seconds or less, what's the best company you've ever come across? Look, there's a lot of really good companies I've come across. Uh, if I was to pick one, the, the very best is Hermes, uh, the, the French luxury brand. I am in awe of their longevity. And if I talk about degree of difficulty, a lot of people talk about growing fast, being the coolest company, being the coolest tech. I think longevity is the hardest thing to achieve as a company. And Hermes is a company that's been around uh, 200 odd years. It's, it's a really old company but still growing at an incredible rate and still founder-led, still owned by descendants of uh, Hermes. Wow. How, how they uh, managed to sell used handbags for $101,629, I'm looking online here, it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's incredible. It's incredible. Seriously strong brand. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, crazy. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, those are the companies I admire, the ones that, um, that, that are just been around for, for centuries and will continue to be around. So mm. it's probably the best company for me. Mm. Wow. I'm just looking at their share price chart where they listed in ni- 1993 at just under six euros and they're now over a thousand, 1,200 euros. That, that's compounding for you. <laughs> yeah. In a, in, a re- in a retail market, you know, to be so dominant with the brand um, and that's, that's the power of, of time and uh, chipping away at things and that mindset, that yeah. family mindset. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, Lawrence, uh, final question that we always like to end these interviews with. If you if you think back to your younger self when you were just starting out, uh, you know, investing, you were doing your master's course and spending the weekend looking for undervalued LICs and, and REITs, uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? Uh, I would tell myself in Feb 2008 and Feb 2020. <laughs> Just cash it all out. Cash it all out. <laughs> cash it all out and come back in two months later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? And <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, um, I'd I'd tell myself to take advantage of my strengths earlier. You know, my evolution has come from a really strict value, value-based, rules-based style. And as such, I've overlooked a lot of opportunities. I was very black and white, too black and white, and too too closely following of what others did, you know, through my, through reading about their experiences and reading their books and things like that. But the key to investing is actually to learn from their mistakes before you, so you don't need to make your own, but to adapt your own strengths into your style. So I I would advise myself, don't try and invest like a 60-year-old fund manager. You're not 60, you've got advantages being younger. What worked for them back in their day doesn't work now. Market conditions and and human advancement changes and and the game changes constantly. So play to your strengths. For me, that's next generation founder-led companies. It's understanding emerging products and services, using them, being customers of these products and services, understanding broader geographies beyond Australia and the US. It's looking into Asia and Europe, 
going broader and deeper than other people. And that's my game. That's where my advantage lies. And that's what I would tell myself to do. Awesome. Thanks, Lawrence. Great way to finish the episode. And it's been truly fascinating. It's a a strategy that we haven't spoken about in detail on the show before. So we very much appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your insights and your time with us today. I know that a lot of the community would have really enjoyed that conversation. So uh, an absolute pleasure and uh, we thank you. Pleasure, guys. Um, I'll be keeping a close eye on your podcast and uh, wishing you all the best and, and a successful future being founders yourselves. Thank you very thanks, much. Thanks, Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Equity Mates. We love hearing from you. So drop us a line at contact at equitymates.com or even better, go to your podcast player and leave a five-star review. Also, a reminder that the Equity Mates content train doesn't stop when you've run out of episodes to binge. We've got a brand new website, a Facebook discussion group. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and slowly making our way as an influencer on TikTok. Well, that's Ren. So uh, come and say hello and join the community. We'd love to welcome you. Until next time. Equity Mates Investing Podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equity Mates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equity Meets Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equity Mates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.